I'm Corey, and we had the opportunity to follow all of the madness surrounding Woodstock 50. Something that was really cool was talking to the authors of different Woodstock books. Yeah, the topic was the same, but completely different angles and approaches. For this segment, I want to spotlight two authors. And the title of the book is Woodstock 50 Years of Peace and Music. That was the first major book to be released. That's the author. Dan Buckspan. The other major book. Woodstock. 50th anniversary, back to Yasger's farm. And the author's name? Mike Greenblatt. It was apparent when I was talking with these guys that they had a book to sell, so they were really bringing their A-game when it came to promoting their book. Now, I'm not going to take a position and say what book is better. You can come up with your own opinion if you have one, and I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Besides, these books are about a festival promoting peace and love. Each of these guys did a really incredible job documenting the event. Well, you get hundreds of pictures and many of them never before seen. I did 32 interviews for this book. That's Mike Greenblatt's pitch. As for Dan Buck's band. We wanted to really focus on the experience of the people who were there when they were there. And we spent a lot of time talking with audience members. That's what's cool about Dan's book. It's by the people, for the people, and to the people. As for Mike, he was actually at the fest. Uh, the people that were around me, I, their faces were sort of melting off. And, and then I saw a couple making love. But I looked closer. They weren't making love. They were doing some kind of crazy yoga. That's Mike detailing his brown acid experience, which already brings up an interesting topic for debate. It was immortalized on the soundtrack album that people were advised not to take the brown acid. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many however many grains of salt you wish. If you've listened to the soundtrack album, I'm sure you remember that. That the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. <laughs> so I really wanted to know, okay, no one's really looked into this before. What, what was the deal with the brown acid? And so I asked every person that I interviewed, uh, right up to the promoters, what the deal was with it. Nobody could really remember that there even was specifically any brown acid there at all. It was more likely that like maybe one person had taken some acid that was not good or that was cut with speed or something like that and had a bad experience. And that just kind of snowballed for people into, oh, my God, oh, my God, don't take the brown acid. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? And then, of course, Mike, he had a completely different take. This nice lady had given me a loaf of bread and a hit of this brown acid. And when the guy on stage, Chipmunk... That the brown acid that is circulating around us... Is is not specifically too good. <laughs> Made the famous pronouncement, which was in the movie, don't take the brown acid. I freaked out and I yelled, I just took it! So the acid started hitting me hard at the same time that the skies got really black in the middle of the afternoon. I thought I was hallucinating. Here's an interesting curveball because Dan, who said he couldn't find any accounts of the brown acid, quoted this great line. I asked Wavy Gravy about it, and I asked him, like, so, you know, what, what was the deal with the brown acid? And he goes, dude, there were like 800 colors of acid there. Now, 
Mike, he was able to squeeze in a few great quotes from Wavy Gravy as well. Wavy Gravy, the hippie clown, of course, he wasn't Wavy Gravy back then. He was still you Romney, and he was responsible for the medical tent and for feeding people. Uh, his hog farm had uh, flown in from New Mexico with 15,000 pounds of grain and oats and raisins. A few things that the authors were quick to agree on was a Grateful Dead's horrible performance. They were awful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They were awful. Yeah, the general consensus from everyone I talked to and also from Jerry Garcia was that 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 was the worst performance they ever played in their entire history. And Jerry Garcia in Bill Graham's book said that they were awful. They had horrible equipment problems. Like Jerry Garcia is on record in print saying that. And most of the people that I talked to just sounded like they just they couldn't really get it together that that night. Every time their lips touched the microphone, they'd get a shock. Uh, it was wet on stage. The monitors weren't working. They couldn't hear themselves. Owsley Stanley rewired the stage for them before they went on because it had been raining. And he may have had, how can I put this, questionable abilities with regard to rewiring an entire stage. Yet they still opted to do... Turn on your love light by the Bobby Blue Bland Blues Band for like a half an hour. Now, come on, man. We were yelling at them. Get off the stage. You suck. Jerry Garcia kept getting electric shots off his guitar for the entire set. And then I interviewed the, the two guys from Creedence Clearwater Revival who were waiting in the wings to go on. And they knew the dead because they're both from San Francisco. And, uh... And they couldn't believe the audacity of this band. They said that they were selfish. They kept playing and kept playing, and they never got off the damn stage. And they put everybody to sleep. But there was also one guy who I talked to who said, they were amazing. Oh, my God. I've, I've never seen a band like that in my life. One key feature of both their books was uh, mentioning how great the audience behaved and went above and beyond. Joel Rosenman, who is one of the promoters, when he looks back at the Woodstock story, to him, the hero of Woodstock was the crowd. Because you had 400,000 people in less than optimum condition. Marilyn Cohen, wherever you are, Marilyn Cohen, Greg wants you to meet him at the information booth because he wants to marry you for almost four days, and they kept it together the whole time. There goes Maryland! That's a huge amount of people. Let's face the situation. We've had thousands and thousands of people come here today. Many, many more than we knew or even dreamt or thought would be possible. 500,000 people. It was the second largest city in the state at that point. There was no, no police. Everything's cool. Everything's very cool all the way around. Help us with the water and the garbage. Those are the two things that you can do. Thank you all again. It just keeps going. It's lovely. That's almost, I think, the population of San Francisco. City McGee, or C.T. McGee, rather. Please come immediately to backstage right, which is over here. I understand your wife is having a baby. Congratulations. You take a half a million people in one place. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. And you put them through conditions that were not very conducive to uh, friendliness. No, not enough water, not enough food, not enough bathrooms. And then you add a, a, a horrific monsoon 
on Sunday, and you'd think it could have been horrible. Elliot from Harvard. The hitchhikers you need, the hitchhikers you picked up, need the pills from your car. Please go to the information station right away. Lewis Pitnick. Lewis Pitnick, your brother is in the Fallsburg police station. Without any sort of prompting or without anyone telling them to do it, these these kids just sort of formed a little impromptu society. That brings us fairly close to the dawn. Maybe the best thing for everybody to do, unless you have a tent or some place specific to go to, is carve yourself out a piece of territory, say goodnight to your neighbor, and say thank you to yourself for making this the most peaceful, most pleasant day anybody's ever had in this kind of music. But there was not one reported instance of violence. That's impossible. That can't happen. Some people say in the back or wherever you may be that the principles of the fair have copped out. Um, (laughs) I hardly think this is so. The provisions that have been made for food and water between the army and the volunteers, we're in pretty good shape. Bear with us if you can, please. Everyone just knew, like, okay, this is a kind of, like, special once-in-a-lifetime thing, and we're going to keep it together. A half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music, and I got bless you for it. It was a cosmic accident. We'll go through one or two of these more. Ann Chaplin and Sierra Alfonso bring Scully his asthma pills and meet him at stage right now. That's over here. Andy, Pat, Doug, Elsie from Minneapolis, please meet Janie and Jewel at the first aid van. Jamie must get to... People fed each other. I was one of the people that stood around doing nothing. Everybody here that's got a Peace Patrol uh, t-shirt on, they're here to help you. If you stub your toe, if you put something down your throat that doesn't belong there, if you're feeling dizzy... If something weird's happening, find one of them. They'll help you. It's almost like a miracle that you had all these people who did not know each other all sitting in a field together for a whole weekend in mud. With those of you who have taken up residence on the towers, please come down. There are people sitting behind you who have the same right as you, who unfortunately cannot see It would be greatly appreciated if you'd please come down. There wasn't enough food, water, or bathrooms. It was declared a disaster area. The site was declared a disaster area. There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. And with not enough food and, you know, not enough bathrooms and that kind of thing. Okay. Insulin and all the other drugs are available in the medical centers. If you need something, for God's sake, don't sit there. You can always come back. We're going to be here. And they kept it together. That's, that's not a small thing. We have had no idea that there would be this size group. And because of that, you've had quite a few inconveniences as far as water and food and so forth. Your producers have done a mammoth job to see that you're taken care of. They enjoy the of thanks. And guys that I would be scared to meet on a dark corner in Newark, New Jersey, where I was raised, were building fires and feeding people. Everybody's ground getting comfortable now. Starting to fit just right. Sit there. Look at all those people around you. Get acquainted. Have a smoke. We're not going to let this devolve into something horrible. John Spaventa or Sharon, come to the front of the stage. It's very important, please. Anyone who is with Shasa. Please meet her in the front of the stage. 
she has lost. It was unbelievable how everyone in, they cleaned up. We cleaned up garbage. Saturday morning, uh, one of the promoters got on stage and he goes, uh, we're going to be passing out garbage bags. There's a couple of packages of garbage bags here. If on your way out, you wouldn't mind taking one, filling it up and leaving it where you fill it. We cleaned up garbage. To their credit, that's exactly what happened. We, uh, it was really a communal exercise in what we stood for, peace and love. And we proved it. It's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man. Dan, he had this really cool story of a audience member trying to turn in their ticket. There was one guy that I talked to who had bought his tickets and... They started letting everyone in, and the fences were coming down. And so he walked over to, I guess, what would have been the box office and, like, stuffed his tickets into the window. Just so, you know, sort of like, look, I paid. Here, here are my tickets. And then he went in. He wanted to do it as according to the rules as possible. Like, look, I'm a good citizen. See, I paid. Mike, he was able to recall his experience trying to hand in his ticket for Woodstock. No security. No one to give your ticket to. We just threw it away. We threw our ticket away. Where do we give it? Who do we give a ticket to? We didn't know. Uh, So you did buy a ticket. That's hilarious. I bought my ticket for $17.50 at the last straw in Bloomfield, New Jersey. That covered all three days. There was another commonality, and surprisingly, it was the weather forecast. Mike's personal experience? I just tried to hold on and survive. It became, as I say, it became a survival story. What was idyllic Thursday, Friday, and Saturday was a survival movie on Sunday. At that point, it wasn't fun anymore. I mean, I was hungry and thirsty, freezing after the rains came, soaked. Weather was definitely a huge conversation piece for both of the authors. And just like the brown acid conspiracy, it was Dan who brought up this interesting angle about the rain. Chip Monk, who was the original lighting designer and also uh, was the MC about half the time at Woodstock. When I interviewed him, he said that he thought, you know, one of the big reasons that the festival was peaceful and that there were no problems like that, he said, was because it rained at exactly the right time. The rain kind of gave everyone something to bond over, and it gave them like a pain point to bond over. You know, you can't time that. It's just what happened. And um, so much of Woodstock going off the way that it did was really not in anyone's control. It was really out of a lot of people's hands. So, you know, it's it's a very it's a very tricky balance. think that there was a spirit of we're all kind of struggling together to keep this weekend rolling that you couldn't have actually at a better organized event so much went right that should not have gone right in a lot of ways it's kind of amazing that it went off the way that it did that it went off as well as it man i just gotta say that you people have got to be the strongest bunch of people i ever saw (laughs) Three days, man. Three days. We just love you. We just love you. 
It wasn't just at the festival where there were difficult times. Both authors did a great job recapping the difficult times during the year that the festival took place. By 1969, it kind of had this feeling of this might not be working out. This, this may not be how things are going to go. The press was declaring the hippie dead because the Charles Manson thing had just happened. With the world at the time, with the war. Everyone was against the Vietnam War. Back in 69, if you saw a fellow long hair on the street, you can pretty much rest assured that he was against the war in Vietnam. And uh, with LBJ. Civil rights was uh, rearing its head. There was just a lot of really bad sentiment out there. We were all afraid that we were going to get drafted and go fight this immoral, illegal war in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. There was just a lot of discontent generally. And so was the seeds of uh, gay pride. The, um, the situation in the village had just happened with that gay nightclub that was, uh, there was some violence there. So it was the seeds of, of gay pride too. So there was a lot of things we were all united on. This is where it segues from newspaper headlines to what was going on through people's heads and hearts. Now, although this metaphysical angle doesn't really connect the lines between A and B, it does connect the lines with everything that was going on everywhere. You know, I think there was a real feeling that the energy and feelings of just the youth movement at the time was going to build. We knew that it was a a big deal. At first, we didn't, of course, because when you're in it, you're, you're sort of in the middle of it and you don't realize the importance of it. There's going to be a real revolution and they're going to take over the world, not a violent revolution. But Arlo Guthrie came out Friday and he held up the New York Post and he said that famous line, he goes, the New York State Thruway is closed, man. But the one major thing you have to remember tonight when you go back up into the woods to go to sleep or if you stay here is that the man next to you is your brother and you damn well better treat each other that way because if they don't, Then we blow the whole thing, but we've got it right there. We realized at that time on Friday night that uh, the whole world's watching. And that sense that the whole world is watching. Just one of where their attitudes would prevail. What we're doing here this weekend permeated the entire four days. I really like this statement. I was wondering if you could elaborate on it, do a little bit, because there was sort of a paradoxical factor to it where it talks about how the world today feels far removed from the one which Woodstock was possible. And then so it's like we, we've moved on from that area. But then there's also insights on how the festival is still making an impact on pop culture. You know, it's a heavy period in history now also, but really for different reasons. A man walked on the moon like a week before Woodstock. That was on everybody's minds. And the feeling of it is different. It's a lot more, I don't know, I feel like today it's, it's a much more anxious time. There's a lot more just anxiety in the air. My sense from talking to everybody who I spoke to is that it just wasn't like that. You didn't have this ongoing kind of in the background feeling all the time of, oh God, something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. But there were parts of the world or parts of America you could go to to get away from it for a couple of days. Although you have two different authors with two different books, they're still talking about one festival and also one message. And this is where the books can kind of lean on each other. Both of them talk about the pros and cons of the Woodstock era and what's going on today with today's society. Mike's experience of what Woodstock was like and what it's like now. You also have Dan's perspective of today compared to the Woodstock generation. Richie Havens had the great line, we're all still at Woodstock. And that's so true. 
it's definitely because of Woodstock that I, I could reach a state of Zen at a concert, even today, when people are uh, rude or, or with their cell phones or talking or jostling me or pushing me or whatever. It doesn't matter. You didn't have 400,000 people sitting in a field all checking their phones every 10 minutes. That's a major change. People today, because of the technology, I think have become a lot more inward and a lot more to themselves and within themselves. Because as long as the music is playing, we're okay. And that comes right from Woodstock. I think the way that I would just differentiate it from the way things are today is just, you know, there's not as much media. Things were not so saturated. It was possible to go kind of like get lost away from your life for three days just in upstate New York at the time. We don't really have that capability today. Uh, we don't live in that kind of world. thinking to myself, as long as there's music, we're okay. That comes right from Woodstock, and it's, it's kept with me my entire life. Even, even today, it's 68. As long as there's music playing, I'm okay. There was more of a feeling back then, uh, if only just because everyone wasn't holding an iPhone, of we're all in this together. I acknowledge you, person sitting next to me. We have to create a little society together. That would be a lot harder to do today, I think. Snapping back from the realm of the spirit and talking self-improvement, we got to mention something materialistic that actually both authors mentioned and where the books kind of go from leaning on one another or, you know, they can kind of be separated in part one, part two with two different perspectives. It really was cool because when they started talking about this, this is where the pages, you could really start to see they blended together. You know, I spoke to Bobby and Kelly Urkeling. Uh, you know, the couple that graced the uh, the Woodstock cover of the album. Uh, draped in a blanket. They just happened to be standing there wrapped in a blanket, and some guy got a picture of it. We found that couple, by the way. They were just two kids who heard about this concert, and they went. Fifty years later, they're still married. And now for the last 50 years, they've become kind of miniature celebrities from it. Like they have tourists come to their house. And we have a picture of them today. The news will come and, and speak to them on anniversaries. It's had a real effect on their lives without them ever having any intention of that happening to them. I thought that was really cool. It's a mosaic. One festival, two books, two authors, two different perspectives from weather reports, the pros and cons, the events on stage, also the events that took place off stage, behind the scenes. Michael Lang in particular, who is one of the promoters, said that part of his inspiration for wanting to do Woodstock in the first place was that he felt like in a lot of ways the dream of the 60s, of what it could be, seemed to be fading at that time. I found the guy that did the sound, uh, Bill Hanley. He's known as the father of festival sound. I was lucky to find him because he gave me a great interview about the various problems that he had with the sound system. I mean, he had to make sure that the people on the top of the hill, like a half a mile away, could hear it while not blasting out the people in the front row. And... He did. We spoke to this photographer, Amelie Rothschild. She was on the ground there taking photos 
mostly for Jefferson Airplane. But, uh, you know, she got a bunch of other stuff while she was there, too. Professor Chris Langhart of NYU and who wound up doing everything from building a bridge to the stage from the backstage area so the artists wouldn't have to walk across a field with thousands of fans. He also had the uh, medical tent constructed. He even put Christmas lights in the woods so us stoned out hippies could find our way back to the car by following the Christmas lights. So, yes, you're definitely going to find common stories within their books, but they're presented in different ways so it's sort of like a a brand new story the second time it goes around some people have asked me who wrote the better woodstock 50 book and the answer is actually pretty easy it's neither dan buckspan or mike greenblatt the winner is the reader i mentioned this a little bit in the introduction i end the book there's this old cliche of oh if you can remember woodstock then you weren't really there i end the book with my mother's tears when I finally get home. She hugged me and cried and cried and cried. And her tears are a metaphor for that generation trying to understand us. We were a handful. These people remember everything. You just got the sense, just from speaking to them for just a couple of minutes, this was a major event in their lives. And it was really a defining moment for them. Once that was clear to me that that's where they were coming from. And to really handle it with love. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much. It's been a delight seeing you. May we wish you anything that the person next to you wishes for you. Good wishes, good day, and a good life. Thank you.